I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Jerry McDonald works at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and knows that the structure of the health system delivers different outcomes to different types of people. So Jerry set out to find out why and what could be done, including using former cancer patients as peer navigators. This is part of her journey. Geraldine McDonald, Director of Prevention and Wellbeing at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. You did a Churchill Fellowship in 2017 about investigating the role of patient navigation in cancer care. Can you tell us about it? I did. I was very privileged to be one of 21 Victorians in 2017. So I did my fellowship in 2018, looking at the role of patient navigation in cancer care. So I travelled to the US extensively across the US and the UK for about 11 weeks, which was an amazing experience. And particularly looking at the different countries' responses to patient navigation. What did you want to achieve? I wanted to understand if there was a system that could improve patient experience here at Peter Mac. So we know the system is complex, it's very confusing and frightening. Patients describe it as feeling disempowered, having no control, being like on a speeding train with no ticket and no way to get off. So I knew that in the States they have patient navigation systems that were legislated in the 90s and the early 2000s and that they had made some really interesting inroads to not only improving patient experience but actually having dramatic impacts on patient outcomes. It seems like our model of patient care, Jerry, might sort of be a product of the Industrial Revolution, that if we do things efficiently and put people through a similar system, they'll get a certain outcome. What was the awakening in the US, for example, that caused that change? Yeah, it's interesting. There's this amazing bloke, Dr. Harold Freeman, and in um, the early 1990s, he was a, a breast surgeon and he was working in Harlem And he noticed that the poor African women had a much lower cancer survival rate from their breast cancer than the white middle-class women. So their five-year survival rate for the African women was 39% of breast cancer compared to something like 75% of the white middle-class women. So he decided that this was something that could be fixed from outside the system and he developed what became well-known as patient navigation services and he trained up local community leaders that had respect from their community to go into communities and educate women about the importance of mammogram screening and educating about breast checks, self-examination. And so he managed 
after a couple of years to increase the five-year survival rate of these women from 39% to 70%, purely by implementing a very well-run patient navigation program that really focused on not only educating but acknowledging the determinants of health, like you know your socioeconomic status, your your language, your diverse cultures, and bringing them together to enable people to take an opportunity and educate themselves around screening, and then to access certain screening. So, was the difference then about how they felt, or by this personal journey, did it mean that they are able to access more appropriate care? I think it was around education. By educating people, we're improving access to care. These women didn't have access to primary care, so going to the doctors, they couldn't afford to go to the doctors, they couldn't afford medication. So certain, certainly a lot has to give for certain groups. And this particular lower socioeconomic marginalised group, we have them here in Australia. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders really have faced similar issues and the Canadian natives have also faced the same issues. Jerry, we can be a bit smug and self-satisfied in Australia. You know, we've got a universal healthcare system and everyone's got supposedly some sort of base level of access to healthcare. What are the barriers? What do they look like? I think if I focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups, these, our Aboriginal and our First Nations people have had many, many years of being let down by healthcare and by big systems and services such as hospitals. So there is a fear, there's a lack of trust and there's a lack of cultural safety in health services. So if one of our Aboriginal patients walks in the door and they walk into this white, and I don't mean just white as in the colour white, but it's a very white institution, they don't feel culturally safe and their mother's mothers, you know, had their babies taken off them from institutions such as our hospitals, then they don't trust the system. And so actually accessing these groups for education is harder. So we need to set in place systems that allow our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to self-determine and provide them with supports they need when they do walk in our door. So there's barriers before they get there. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Presumably there are streams of service once they're inside the door, which might not be intentional. Well, that's right. Look, you know, in Victoria, and I think probably most Australian health services have Aboriginal health liaison officers. So these are really patient navigators that actually work with our First Nations people and provide a support for them to navigate through the system to make sure the system's culturally safe, educating our clinicians and our staff and our receptionists on what it means to provide culturally safe care. So I think that in Victoria, there's just been some changes actually around how these services are funding. And it's really great because money that goes in towards cultural safety has to be acquitted against cultural safety. So there's no excuse for hospitals not to be doing this work now. And it's about better outcomes. It absolutely is. 
we know that our Aboriginal patients have worse health outcomes, usually because they present later where their disease is more advanced. And I'm talking in particular about cancer care here. And so if we can set up processes where patients feel safe in accessing care, we will see an improvement in outcomes. So we're talking about pretty fundamental human rights, aren't we, in in this case? And it's interesting in an environment, tragic and interesting, in an environment where closing the gap is a well-publicised and well-read report and we all know of the issues. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, you know, the, the issue around unconscious bias is something that sits quite uncomfortably with people, but it's a really interesting thing to do is to look at do I have any unconscious biases? Because often you're not aware of them, right? Because they're unconscious. Exactly. But actually organisations are now challenging unconscious bias and all have to do mandatory training in unconscious bias and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I think a one-off training session, does that do anything? Maybe it does for some people. But I think establishing a system where we can all challenge bias in a fairly non-threatening way can only be a good thing. So that peer navigation is sort of one way of designing in a challenge or challenges to those biases. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we look at the community more broadly and there are a range of other cohorts who experience barriers to equality in healthcare, what might some of those examples and some of those barriers look like? So I would say refugees recently arrived. A lot of our refugees and newly arrived people coming to Australia have come from a trauma-informed background where they may have suffered enormous trauma in escaping their country. So there's the sort of political fears that they have around Something that you and I probably don't think about is, you know, like our Medicare card and what that means to have a Medicare card. You know, we're, we're very lucky. But what else could it mean for a refugee who gets status and eventually gets a Medicare card? The, you know, there's some fear around that. What does that mean, a government tracking me? Yep. So, you know, I think these are the sorts of issues that are not front of mind and, you know, you can't expect everybody to know this, but I think those particular groups are really important. We work with a lot of different cultural groups here at Peter Mac. So we've developed a program called Our Cultural Champions. We use food because everyone loves food, right? And it's a great equaliser food, sitting around a table sharing a meal. So we run sessions in our wellbeing centre where we invite different cultural groups in and cook a meal and we sit around and have a meal and then we'll get an educator in it. We might get our chief medical officer, Dr. David Speakman, to come in and talk about cancer. And so it's that whole, there's a lot of shame for some cultures, particularly Asian cultures as yep. well, and some African cultures of a cancer diagnosis. It's like, I've got this because I did this in another life. or And so really demystifying is so important for those marginalised groups. Yeah, I'm hearing a real trust theme too, Jerry. Yeah, absolutely. Why peer navigators when, in fact, other options might be using nurses or social workers, for example? Yeah, look, I think there's a place for all of them, actually, and I saw different models throughout my Churchill. What I didn't see a lot of were peer navigators. 
Now, here, when we talk about peer navigators, these are generally volunteers who have a lived experience of the area that they're navigating in. So, you know, there are a lot of amazing cancer survivors who have gone through the experience of diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, who want to give back. And so, you know, we'd really like to expand our peer navigator programs where we can utilise the expertise of these people because they really know a lot about cancer and the system. You know, I, I regularly hear from patients, the best advice I ever got was from the woman sitting next to me in the chemo chair. And so we have to listen to that. Patients can get the medical information. They can get it online. They can get it at libraries. They can get it from their clinicians. But actually, the experience of being a patient is so very important. People, even with like characteristics, are still a bit different. How do you, I think, you know, when we were talking previously, you described it as the governance, but how do you actually ensure there is some sort of quality or reliable information coming from someone who's had that experience? Yeah, it's really important, actually. And I think, you know, governance of these models, they'll make or break a, a program. So having somebody who's experienced in managing volunteers and peer navigators, because they, you know, these volunteers and peer navigators, they are the most precious resource to the healthcare system. And really, I think, underutilised and probably don't get the respect they deserve. You know, health systems would fall over without volunteers. They're, They're so important. I guess the thing with these volunteer programs is understanding what's the value proposition for the volunteer, why do you want to do it, and then looking at, okay, within this big system and this structure that we're working in, what is it that you want to do and how can we help you use your experience? But at the same time, how can we sort of in a very respectful manner, say, this is your role. Your role isn't to diagnose and to say this is the best treatment because actually we've got the best clinicians in the world here doing that. So I think providing a really good mentoring program. Yep. We've just set up a new program here at Peter Mac. We've got a brand new palliative care unit, which is beautiful and so lovely for our patients. So we're looking at the role of a palliative care volunteer. We had 120 people apply and they were all extraordinary and they'd all had amazing experiences. And it was quite interesting doing this in the middle of a pandemic, of course, where we couldn't see anyone face to face. So good old Zoom, we we interviewed over 60, I think 75 people over Zoom. There were some people who... We just knew, they knew at the end of the training that it wasn't right for them. Yep. And so we had to say, which is really hard, especially when people have invested a huge amount of time, four days training is a lot, Mm. and then to say, actually, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. So having the processes in place where the people providing the support know the red flag around boundaries and is this right for you at this period in your life? 
So that's been a really interesting program. But I'm interested too, Jerry. is there anyone outside of health, if you've benchmarked, that's doing something like peer navigation well? You know, are you able to look outside health and find a model that is inspiring? I think outside of acute health, mental health have been doing this for many years. I haven't, I haven't really, to be honest, come across any like models outside the health system. But I'd have to say mental health and the HIV movement, they probably really were one of the leads in peer kind of navigation. I'm making this up, but isn't that interesting that at a time when presumably the health system was really struggling to grapple with the issue at hand, the community stepped up? That's exactly right. I mean, it's interesting. I think you look at the major errors in healthcare, you know, when something goes terribly, terribly wrong, you know, and it might be something like, oh, well, there was a medication error, but actually it's the system around the person giving the medication that actually enables the error to occur. Yep. So, you know, you can have the best clinician in the world who will make a mistake one day. Most people do. However, it's the system that enables the mistake. It's the culture of not speaking up, lack of compassion in healthcare that actually really propagate terrible, terrible experiences. Yeah. I think we forget sometimes that I think the the, the old rule was that 85% of the failures of the system, not the person. Exactly. Yeah. What's the next step? What's getting in the way? of wider implementation of peer navigation? My, my, the first thing that pops into my mind is money <laughs> because you do need good governance. But I think the other thing is bravery. And I think that there's an opportunity post-pandemic for the health system to be a bit braver and to look at alternate models of healthcare and strengthening healthcare. I think, you know, the COVID pandemic, you know, overseas in particular, thank goodness we didn't end up like Europe and the UK and the States. But I think inequity in access, you know, you look at the the people who died, a lot of elderly, a lot of lower socioeconomic groups, they're, they're the ones that really suffered. Now that we're in Australia, fingers crossed, post pandemic world, there is an opportunity for governments to go, let's be brave, let's try this. Because we don't have infinite health resources, which we simply can't keep employing more nurses. A, we don't have enough, and B, we don't have enough to pay. Look at these other systems that have been made huge inroads overseas, and just all it would take would be an opportunity to pilot a program. It's it's not a lot of money. There is a group in Melbourne, actually, who are really working together. I'll call it a community of practice where we come together and talk about how we can embed a navigation system in healthcare. And I think, you know, we're getting a few of the right ears. And so we just need to be given the opportunity, I think. Jerry, you've described a world where people access their healthcare earlier and they do it in a way that's more effective. All strength to your arm with that project, and thanks for talking today. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind. 
specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.